Hello, this is the Big Ben History Podcast and the latest in a series of interviews with all those in the Cabinet Room when Margaret Thatcher resigned in 1990. Ladies and gentlemen, we're leaving Downing Street for the last time after 11 and a half wonderful years and we're very happy that we leave the United Kingdom in a very, very much better state than when we came here 11 and a half years ago. It's been a tremendous privilege to serve this country as Prime Minister. Wonderfully happy years, and I'm immensely grateful to the staff who supported me so well. And may I also say a word of thanks to all the people who sent so many letters still arriving, and to all the flowers. Now it's time for a new chapter to open, and I wish John Major all the... In this episode, I speak to Lord Deben, who was Minister for Agriculture, Fisheries and Food when the Iron Lady fell. If you enjoy it, please do give it a review. The conversation that follows may surprise you. Lord Deben tells me the Prime Minister, who told Europe no, 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 would have voted to remain in the 2016 referendum. As to her fall, he remembers it with real sadness, but also realism. After 11 years in power, you inevitably lose touch. There was no plot by cabinet colleagues, just a mournful acceptance that she'd hung on too long. That, though, didn't make it any easier to tell her to her face that she had to quit. We started a wide-ranging chat about life with the Iron Lady by recalling the meeting when she told her cabinet colleagues her time was up. Well, it was part of a series of things. I mean, first of all, the uh, very difficult meeting each one of us had with her to give advice as to what she ought to do, having uh, not won the election by sufficient for her to continue should she go into a second round or not. And that was very tough because many of us had to say we supported her and we would continue to support her but she shouldn't go forward because she was uh, very seriously damaged and this was not the, the way to end a great career. And then of course we had this meeting in which she said that she was going to resign. And then there was the business of actually writing the speech, because she had to say something. And that was the worst part of all. And uh, she obviously had to write it in the same way as we all wrote speeches in any case. So we sat around the cabinet table writing that speech. And uh, she had to write, so, so she had to, we had to talk through how, how she talked about it. And uh, a fascinating thing was how she managed to do it without, without appearing to be in a different position from the way in which she did every other speech. I mean, I wrote a lot of her speeches, and uh, the fact was she, was a, she had a particular way of doing it. She, she argued and discussed and thought about words, and people came up with different sentences, and, and she behaved exactly like that slightly more sort of archery, but not much. And uh, we wanted her to go out with a very clear statement about what she tried to do and how she had been a success without it being 
a kind of attempt to be triumphant in the circumstances, which would have been entirely wrong. Getting the tone right was uh, very difficult, but remarkably easier because of her. And can you remember the meeting itself, the cabinet meeting, uh, when she resigned and when she read, told, told you all she was going to go? It, from what I understand, it was a very emotional occasion. Yes, I mean, it's a very emotional. It's, it's, emotional is a, an odd word, isn't it? Um, People we, were crying, I understand. Well, I, I'm not sure about that. I, I mean, <laughs> I, I'm not addicted to tears myself, um, and so I didn't, but, but although... I was probably annoyed with the Guardian newspaper suggested one did, because I'm not sure that's exactly how it was. I think it was more that we felt this was a, a very sad way to end a remarkable career. Um, Enoch Powell once said, uh, all political lives end in tears. And in that sense, it did end in tears. I don't think she, I don't think she got come to terms with it because she'd been told it was not going to happen. She, she was very ill-advised by her campaign manager who just got it wrong. And uh, we were very clear when she was in Paris coming back, we were very clear that this was by no means a uh, good situation for her. And in a sense, this is the problem for great people to know the moment to go. You, you find it in business. I mean, there are lots of very successful businessmen who, if only they had retired from being chief executive or chairman a bit before, it would have been very different from them. She felt she had so much more to give and so much more in her, and yet to those around her knew very well that this, the time is running out. And you mentioned the meeting before, so there's the cabinet meeting when she officially resigns, but the day before she summons you all one, one, one by one. one. Indeed. I understand. Tell me what that was like. Well, that was very difficult because um, I had to say what seemed to me to be true. I, first of all, my own view was that if you were a cabinet minister, if you uh, had been willing to work with the prime minister, which is what you agreed to do, then you have only one course, which is to support that Prime Minister. I don't, think, I don't think there's a place for deciding that you will go on working until there's a convenient moment to vote against. So I, I never had any question as to what one should do, and so I had voted for her, of course, in the first round. And then when I saw her on this occasion, I said, I vote for you again. That's, uh, that's what I would do. But I have to tell you that that's not what quite a number of people will do. So it's quite possible that on a second round you would do less well. Um, but in any case, it seems to me that this is not the moment to try that. You, you, are, you have too much legacy in history to go out on that basis. How did she react? Oh, she was very good. I mean, she was obviously stressed, you may think otherwise, but she, she expected from her friends, and her friends were not just people who agreed with her. I mean, I'm fundamentally not of that kind of uh, Tory tradition. But once she knew you, she could trust you, then she rather liked the uh, to and fro of uh, people who have a different view. And 
she would test things out on you, and she'd listen. She'd, she'd, if, if she'd got it wrong, it's surprising, if you, if you did it properly and you knew your facts, then she would change her mind. So I didn't expect her to be unable to receive the news. Uh, she was very quiet, and uh, she did not try to push back. I think that's because she knew she was getting the best advice one could give, and that's certainly the impression I got from other people. Were you conflicted? Did you feel disloyal, even though you weren't being disloyal? No, I didn't. I didn't feel disloyal, because I wasn't being disloyal. What I felt was very sad, because it shouldn't have come to this. Um, it should have been possible for her to have chosen a moment, perhaps on her 10th anniversary, or some other moment, when she could have gone with dignity and uh, to have chosen that. We'll, we'll talk about what went wrong and what, why, why she went down that route. Um, a couple of things, the, the, the sort of betrayal narrative is that all the, all the cabinet ministers said the same thing to her, suspiciously similar. Was it a plot in any, had you all talked together, this is what we're going to say? Was it coincidence or how organised were you in the response you gave to her? Well, I haven't talked to anybody. I mean, I can't tell what other people done, but I haven't talked to anybody, um, except in the passing comments of uh, one or two, in the sense of uh, standing outside and we were about to go in, if you see what I mean. But not, uh, no, I don't think, I mean, there may have, I, 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 I'm not, therefore, not in a position to say whether there were some. I, I don't think so. It seems to me that it, it's, we're always trying to find uh, plots and, uh, uh, when, when things don't work like that, what, ha what happens is most sensible people who cared about her, whether they did so from the fact that we cared about her, we'd work for her for as long as I'd worked, and I had written her speeches from the point at which she was in opposition, so it was a very long period of time. Um, if you'd worked for her that long, you did care for her, I and mean, she was... Um, had many remarkable qualities, ones which people outside didn't understand. So even though one didn't find the views that she had on quite a number of issues, um, the views that one had oneself, he went in to do the best for her. And then there were many other members of the cabinet who were closer to her in political views, but they also wanted to say the right thing. Now, there were some people outside who suggested that this was a terrible... <laughs> some terrible plot that we'd done. But they were people who had very often misunderstood what loyalty is. And I can think of several of them who um, found it perfectly possible to be disloyal in the sense of what they'd said outside, but uh, pretending to be Thatcherites of a most extreme kind. And of course she was brought down not by any particular group in the party, brought down by people who felt that uh, that she really ought to go because the party could not succeed if she didn't. Do you, and, uh, another theory put forward by some, uh, Kenneth Baker, Cecil Parkinson said it before he died, that if, if she'd gathered all the cabinet together rather than seeing them one by one and said, right, back me now, that you might have been somehow dragooned into unity. Do you think that would have made any difference? Well, I hope not. I mean, I don't think Cecil Parkinson would have been a good judge of that, actually. Um, I, don't, um, I don't think that would have been true, uh, because I think it would not have been to her advantage. 
The question was, could she win? Well, she might have. But she might have won by smaller majority, in effect, than she had won on the first round. I don't think that's a good way to s succeed. I don't think a great Prime Minister, and she was a great Prime Minister, should have continued like that. I don't think it would be good for her, and I don't think it would have been good for the party or the country. Um, uh, much less interested in the party, uh, but I was interested in her and the country, and I thought she had got to a stage in which she could not have achieved that uh, important unifying role which a Prime Minister has to have. In terms of the reasons for a fall, uh, I mean, nothing's binary, but there's personality and there's policy. Some people I speak to dwell more on the policy, the community charge, the ERM, Europe. Others dwell on the personality, uh, increasing detachment from reality, increasing the imperial in approach. If you had to pick one or the other, which do you think contributed more to her demise? Oh, I think it must be the loss of that instinctive touch that she had had. I think it's wrong to say it's about uh, increasing imperiousness and, the, and that sort of thing, because it wasn't really that. What it was that she had ceased to have this remarkable talent she had for understanding what Middle England really thought about things. Um, I didn't mean to say that she always did that. She would, for example, have certainly voted Remain in this, uh, in this recent uh, referendum. Uh, she understood the realities of uh, life and the realities of Europe. It didn't mean to say that she, that she loved the concept of uh, Europe. Uh, we differed very much in that. But she knew the realities of the world. But she also understood how people reacted to things. And she was very close to the right language to use. And then gradually, it was that she lost that. And I think it was actually the affliction of time. I mean, it wasn't that she became detached because she wasn't interested in all the rest of it. It just simply is that if you are Prime Minister for longer than a certain amount of time, you are detached. That is the nature of being Prime Minister. And uh, it is that that changed it. Once she had ceased to have that natural connection, which was her genuine and special uh, ability. And of course, she did have around her some people who saw her merely as a kind of um, philosophic figure, I mean, as a person who represented their particular views. And that's not what was successful as far as she was concerned. She, she certainly needed to have that backbone of, uh, uh, of understanding of, of how the world needed to be changed to make the changes that were so necessary. I'm not suggesting that she didn't have that, but I am suggesting that the thing that made it possible for her to do that was that she had this uh, very, very clear connection with the way in which the world worked and the way that people thought and the language which would uh, bring them to understand what she was trying to do. That's fascinating, but I, I, will, I will prod away more at the personal. Um, there's one meeting, one cabinet meeting that comes up every time I talk to people about the fall of Margaret Thatcher. It's a cabinet meeting, I think it will be a week, about a couple of weeks before, mm -hmm. where she monsters Geoffrey Howe over the diary. Do you remember that? And it triggered his resignation. Do you remember it? Did it stick in your mind? Did you notice that other people did? 
Or it... Yes, but, but of course, but, but there were other occasions in which she did that. I mean, that was particularly uh, uh, unseemly, and apart from anything else, but I mean, that was particularly so. But I can remember her doing that to, to, to other individuals. I mean, what she... She had a great feeling for rigour of thought, which is quite interesting because she she wasn't she wasn't a well-read woman, you know. She was a scientist, but she wasn't a well-read woman. She wasn't a, much of the philosophy she quoted was she quoted in sentences. She, you know, this was these were ideas that she'd got hold of. Uh, but she did dislike a lack of rigour, and I remember one cabinet minister who made some offhand remark, and she pressed him and pressed him, and he hadn't done the homework. And he, she was totally destructive in that case because she knew she wouldn't have it. She would, so you could have an argument with her about something really difficult. And I did have to, as, as a minister, to go to her and say, you know, you have said this. This is not actually true. This is the reality. This is what the scientists say. This is what I've put together. And the policy that you have been putting forward, we can't defend. And, and if you were rigorous, as long as you blooming well were, <laughs> as long as you knew the answers, then she would agree. But what she couldn't stand was what she saw, thought was a kind of laziness in, in, in mind. So that's why she found in the early days it very difficult to deal with those who she saw as uh, having been born with something of a silver spoon in their mouth. So she... She, she, she thought they were lazy. She couldn't... Well, it wasn't that they, were, they weren't intellectually lazy. No, they were yeah. not physically lazy in that sense, but that, that, that they accepted certain things without thinking through them. Um, and she thought you should never do that. She thought that you, you, should, you should argue your case. And if you could argue your case, even if it were a case she didn't like, she would, she would give way if, if, if she felt you were right and, and that she had been wrong. So uh, I think that you shouldn't think of the, um, the Geoffrey Howe occasion as unique because there were other occasions in which people were, I mean, literally savaged in, in that sense. Uh, and what would you do if you were there watching it? Was you, would everyone sort of look down at their notes? Was it a sort of rather British? What, what, was it embarrassing? It's always embarrassing when, when someone is overtly um, um, categorically determined to put their view over, even though it were to the destruction or the or indeed the, the, the upset of other people. I mean, on this particular occasion, it seemed to me that one does have to say um, that in most things, Geoffrey Howe had a better understanding of, uh, of foreign affairs and, and what needed to be done than she did. She, uh, he, was, uh, he was an extraordinarily good minister and a remarkable man. And he didn't deserve that. And he was right to go. And she shouldn't have done it. But then, you know, she was a remarkable woman and uh, therefore you accept that there are drawbacks as well as other things. <laughs> yeah, it's lovely to be you. You're grinning and you, you know, you, there's a twinkle in your eye talking about her. Uh, and yet, everything I know about you, you're part of the pro-European, a dying breed, a pro-European within the Conservative oh, Party. Oh, not a dying breed, but going to win. Don't, <laughs> no, don't get that. <laughs> how, how did you, were you exasperated by her, her direction of travel on Europe? When you heard the speech, no, 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 did you wince and get cross or 
was it all just part of the Thatcherite package? No, you just had to accept that that was what her father had taught her. I mean, this was one of the, this was one of the drawbacks of her, which was this narrow Methodist nationalist um, dislike of Germans background she came from. Um, and you just have to realise we all are, to some extent, prisoners of our backgrounds. Now, sometimes that background has freed us because I was lucky, for example, to have a background of, of a father who was enormously open-minded and tremendously understanding of the world we lived in. So that was of... My, my background was one that freed me. Her background did the opposite. Um, and, and you talk of the terrible sadness at the time when she, when she resigns in this cabinet meeting, you're all, all, all seeing it there. Um, do, what was the impact of it? Do you think, had, had there been a way that you'd managed to usher her out with more dignity, would the future have been different? Did the nature of her going dictate many of the events that followed? Well, I think, I think it enabled something of a Thatcherite legend to grow more readily than it would otherwise have done. Uh, there are people in the Tory party who has no, have no idea as to what she was really like and, and the way in which she really operated, who espouse extreme right-wing views and call them Thatcherite. They're not at all. She was not actually an extreme right-wing. After all, she was a huge supporter and indeed almost creator of the single market. Um, Treaty of Rome. When the Treaty of Yes, but I mean, you have to remember that she, uh, it wasn't that she changed at all, I mean, but she did have a view about how you expressed these things. And she wasn't a natural uh, ally. That's not how she operated. So it wasn't just because of Europe, she was not a natural ally. Um, except as far as the Americans were concerned, she had a, a thing about America, but above all, it was that America had a thing about her. It was a very welcome place. When she went, they all, everybody, acknowledged her in a way. And she was much better received there than she would have been in Britain. Certainly that was part of the mix. But I suppose the problem is that people who call themselves Thatcherites, first of all, I think it's a great mistake to commit yourself to some previous, or indeed even present leaders, not a way to think about politics, but still, they don't remember that she was, first of all, extremely cautious. Uh, she was very careful about how she did the privatisations. Uh, she didn't take on too much at any one time. Indeed, many of us had difficulties in trying to get her to, to agree, for example, to getting rid of the dock labour scheme, which was so damaging to Britain really took some time. So on that occasion, I suppose uh, I would be seen very much on the right of her in, that, in, in, in looking for that. We never got her to denationalise the railways. And until we did do that, the railways never became what they are now, which is a hugely successful enterprise, which people forget. We always found that she was extremely cautious. When you wrote her speeches, you discovered that because she would be very careful about almost every word, because she was very cautious about giving people any chance to, uh, to misunderstand what she said. That was important, because truth was important to her. But at the same time, she was very concerned not to give hostages to the fortune. She would uh, 
She would sometimes see uh, poo traps that weren't there. <laughs> she would be... And so the, the, the people who think that Thatcherism is about banging on about some extremist view don't understand what she was like at all. She didn't bang on about extremism. She did have some very solidly based bourgeois attitudes to the world. That is certainly true. She wouldn't have easily understood a world in which our normal attitude is to allow people to do what they wanted. She, she could see that you could do that economically, for example, but she was not. She was socially very conservative. Um, and in that, it was a very different world from the world that she understood. Impossible to avoid events that are happening now around us uh, in Westminster. Is it facile to see what's happening now and see what happened 28 years ago as part of the same story? Well, it is not facile to say that there is a group of people in the Conservative Party who care not at all for the future of the party or indeed a, a real care for the future of the country, but who are just dogmatists, who cannot see beyond their dogma. And unfortunately, some of them associate themselves with Mrs Thatcher. She wouldn't have had anything to do with, um, for example, with uh, Rees-Mogg. She would have seen that as a totally unacceptable kind of way of looking at the world. She'd also be very questionable about uh, questioning about people who, on the one hand, said that they believed in all these things, and then in their business life or, or in their private life or in some other life suggested that they really thought differently. So she wouldn't be much keen on people... Um, who wanted to live in France and fight, <laughs> you know, there, there, there would be a different... She, she was a very, she was very clear about her ideas of morality, so there was no doubt about that. Uh, I do think there is this self-destructive group in the Tory party, and they were people who, at the time of Mrs Thatcher's resignation, quite a number of them, uh, professing enormous support we knew perfectly well and voted against her. Well, thing I've got to just very quickly pick up, she would have voted Remain. Is that just a rhetorical flourish? Are you absolutely convinced oh, of that? So. Oh, totally so. I mean, she was a very sensible woman. I mean, she knew perfectly well why it was that you were part of the European Union. She didn't like, of course, she didn't like those who had a kind of philosophic view about about European unity in the sort of political sense. Of course she didn't like that. That was not her kind of way of looking at it. But when you got down to the adding up and the taking away, she knew precisely why the single market was important. She would have been furious with these people who don't understand that uh, frictionless trade is crucially important. She knew perfectly well that we had some of the best free trading arrangements with the rest of the world. She never questioned the idea that the whole of Europe used to do its trading negotiations because that's the way you got deals. She never suggested that you could have the kind of deal with the United States which some of these people talk about because she knew about the United States. Very, very much a hero worshipper of the United States, but she did know perfectly well just how protectionist it was and just what the terms of trade would be if you tried to deal a deal with her. So she, she was a very realistic woman and a very cautious woman. So when I say she would have voted Remain, she would have never have got a, a 
first of all, she'd never have gone for a, for, for a referendum in the first place, but the, she never thought that she should leave the European Union. There was absolutely no question of that at all. And after all, I, in that sense, knew her better than most because she knew what my views were. And sometimes she'd say something, she'd say, don't listen to this, John, because <laughs> you won't like it because it's not nice about Europe. But didn't mean to say that she ever had any thoughts that we weren't sensibly there. She campaigned for it in the first place. She'd never changed from that. What a brilliant moment to end on. Well, Demon, thank you so much for making up some time. <laughs>